bed last night kind of late like most of you. Looks like we kind of thinned our ranks this morning for that football game last night. But I, I went to bed last night so happy for Dick Cowan and John Coakley. I mean, I was, you know, UT, Big Orange, finally won the big game. I was just, just thrilled for them. So I decided to wear my orange tie today and everything. I knew, I knew they'd just be thrilled. Where's Coakley? Did he sleep in this morning? Couldn't take it. All right, well, that was some football game. Uh, if you did not stay up last night, you were a devoted amen student, and you wanted to be fresh this morning, uh, be sure and get the tape, especially in the second half. Uh, Lee Corso said that, that uh, uh, Vince uh, Young's performance may have been the best college athletic performance he'd ever seen in his life. Uh, that's quite a statement from a guy who's been watching athletics for a long time, especially football. It was just uh, absolutely marvelous to uh, see this display of human athletic skill. I was just uh, off the chart. So congratulations to uh, University of Texas fans. It'd be kind of hard, I think, to be in a Bible study in Pasadena, California this morning. <laughs> I mean, how do you deal with a loss like that? Uh, I mean, up 12 points, you know, six minutes to go. And people uh, in the sports uh, uh, world were speculating as to whether this could have been the greatest team that ever was. You know, they were comparing them to you know, the Alabama team of 69 and some of the other former USC teams and so on, down by 12 points with six minutes to go against that team. That's called a bad predicament. Uh, and uh, it was really something to, to, see that, to see that game. So if you stayed up and watched it, I'm working with you to stay awake uh, in these, this time together. Let's work on it. Well, guys, you know, at this time of the year, uh, normally uh, we're thinking about the future and and we also look back to the past. And one of you told me that it's kind of your family tradition that during the holidays, Christmas holidays, uh, you gather around as a family and sort of share what were your goals and aspirations last year and how did last year turn out for you and what are your goals and aspirations for the next year. And I suppose that whether you have that as a family tradition or not, I guess that could be kind of intimidating. Uh, it's, it's something that we all go through at some time of the year. Uh, it may not be December, January. It may be some other time of the year for you. But for, for a lot of people, it's this time of the year when we kind of take stock and say, you know, what, what were we trying to accomplish? Did we do it? Uh, what, what is the mission of my life? What's the meaning of it? And uh, it's very appropriate that, that we're coming to a part in the Scriptures, a, a book in the Bible, that is very helpful in having us look again at what the real purpose of life is so that you, you know what the standard is against which to measure yourself. What is the job description, so to speak, of human life? And to give us some tools to see how to measure ourselves on that standard. Well, you can already predict we're not going to come out very well in this evaluation. <laughs> so then what do you do at the end of the evaluation when your score is unsatisfactory? Well, we're going to look at the book of the Bible who, that has an answer for not only how do we measure ourselves, what is the standard for success in human life, but what do you do when you get to the end of your evaluation and it's not solid, it's not even satisfactory, it's unsatisfactory, what do you do? And this book of the Bible is going to give us answers like, like none other that we've looked at. Now, if we look back this past uh, few months, uh, the first half, if you will, of our Amen study, uh, we have studied a number of the books of the Minor Prophets. We've looked at Hosea and Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, and in Hosea, uh, we saw this wonderful description of God's grace, probably like nowhere else uh, in the Old Testament. In Joel, 
uh, we saw the nature of repentance and the glory of the future that awaits us. In Amos, we especially studied uh, the issue of righteousness and justice. And we looked at both of those concepts that, which are key to understanding uh, the calling upon human beings, especially as, as it's revealed in the Old Testament. And we look at the hypocrisy of the church in Amos and God's reaction to it. In Obadiah, we looked at how dangerous it is to oppose the church of God because the kingdom of God uh, belongs uh, to the church and to the Lord himself. And in Jonah, we studied how important it is to know your own God-given mission and the impediments that keep you from it. We noticed uh, how much this whole world means to God and why, therefore, uh, it is it should be part of our own personal mission in life uh, to be involved in world mission and evangelization. So uh, the books of the, in the Minor Prophets have shown us so many wonderful things. And one of you mentioned to me uh, on the way out of Amen, maybe last time or time before, you said, you know, this is really great. You know, I'm, this is very interesting, studying the Minor Prophets. And, and uh, you said to me, you know, I wasn't expecting this because they all just seem to be saying the same thing. <laughs> Well, there, there is a sense in which they all say some th- same things, and we've seen that, too, that there are commonalities to these minor prophets and to the other prophets, too. We saw that the prophets in general are taking the ancient word of God, that is, the word of God revealed in the Pentateuch. They're taking the Pentateuch and applying it to contemporary society, which is exactly what we're supposed to do. And we've seen that what we're trying to do is to become the prophets ourselves. And that's what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ. If he's prophet, priest, and king, then we take on the role of prophet, of priest in this world, and of king in certain respects. So we're trying to find our voice as men in this world. And we've found that if we'll imitate the prophets, we'll get off to a good start. Because what they did was they took the revealed word of God in the Pentateuch and applied it in their own day, uh, maybe a thousand years later in some cases. Well, we're taking the word of God that which canon closed 2,000 years ago, and we're applying it 2,000 years later in our own day. Well, this is what all the prophets uh, do. We saw that they speak of judgment and they speak of salvation. And we saw that in the minor prophets, the natural pattern, the normal pattern is that the judgment is going to take place in the short term, and it does, uh, primarily with the coming of the Assyrians and then the coming of the Babylonians. But then there's salvation in the long term which would be the second coming of Jesus Christ, and that salvation has been initiated in his first coming. We've seen that uh, the prophetic voice is the key to finding our voice. So all those things are common in the minor prophets that we've studied, but we find that they each have their own distinctives, as, as I mentioned this morning. Well, what's the distinctive of Micah? Well, when we turn to Micah, and you can, you can do that in your Bibles, turn to page 1467 in your study Bible. We're going to look at Micah and find that Micah, too, does the same thing. He speaks of judgment and of salvation. He speaks of judgment in the short term. He speaks of salvation, uh, especially in the long term. He's taking the ancient word of God and applying it in his contemporary world. These things are common to Micah, too. So you might think, well, here we go again. No, there are some very distinctive things about Micah. One of the distinctives is what we're just talking about. How do you know what your job description is? Well, you find that famous verse in, in Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, where the question is asked, well, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased 
with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? So Micah is asking the question, how shall I please God? Here's your job description. Please Him. If you, uh, if you have a new job, one of the first things you want to do is sit down with your supervisor or your board of directors and say, gentlemen, if I am successful over the next three years, what will that look like? Define success for me. Tell me what a, a outstanding performance will look like to you. You want to know what's in their minds. What's the vision in their minds for your performance? What will define success? Because that's what you're going after. Well, if you're a creature who's asking, what's my job description? What defines success as a creature? Here it is. Please the Creator. And then so you want to ask the Creator. Okay, thank you. I'm glad to be reminded of that. <laughs> I kind of got off base. All right, I'm back, in, I'm back in order now. I know I'm supposed to please you. Now, what would please you? Give me my job description. Well, here it is. He has showed you, verse 8, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you to act justly? There's justice. That is, pursue justice. To love mercy. To value the mercy of God and imitate it. To love His mercy. And to walk humbly with your God. Don't try to be God yourself. Act as a creature. Act as a sinful, dependent creature. Now, that will please the Lord and that will be success. And there's your job description. Micah is a wonderful book of the Bible for those verses alone. But then if you turn back another chapter, you get another distinctive of Micah, which speaks about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, a text we read almost every Advent season in the church. Verse 2 of chapter 5, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Look at this. Out of Bethlehem will come a ruler. Now, where in the world did this come from? And lo and behold, that's exactly what happens with the Lord Jesus Christ. In God's providence, Caesar wanted to tax everybody, wanted to have everybody enrolled. And so uh, Joseph had to go back to the town of his own origin, and he goes back to Bethlehem to enroll, and there the ruler is born. A very distinct prophecy that tells us about the Messiah. I keep reading, therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth and the rest of the brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And he will be their peace, verse 5. Wow! A wonderful, particular, distinctive prophecy from Micah, which gives us the answer, uh, as we shall see, for our falling short of the job description. So, Micah does a great job in showing us God's expectations, uh, giving us that against which we, you know, we evaluate our own performance, and giving us God's answer for what we do at the end of that evaluation. We'll talk some more about that a little bit later on. But Micah is distinctive for those things and other things. Uh, if you look in chapter 1, for example, we're going to see as we read this text, this marvelous description of the majesty of God. It's one of the most marvelous descriptions of God's majesty you'll find in the Bible. And it comes from Micah. 
Uh, you also find in the course of the very end of the book, one of the greatest descriptions of God's forgiveness that you'll ever find in chapter seven, the last three verses of the entire prophecy. So these things are distinctives to Micah. And then in chapter two, we'll run across uh, Micah's remnant theology. We've already run against remnant theology in Amos. And there are a few prophets that specialize in remnant theology. And Micah is one of them. And it's important to his message. So we're going to see some very distinctive things about Micah that are carried forward in the New Testament uh, that are important for us to be successful as creatures of the living God. So let's look at these first uh, seven verses in Micah. Uh, Let's read them. Uh, Chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. The vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, O peoples, all of you, listen, O earth, and all who are in it, that the sovereign Lord may witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads the high places of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him and the valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. All this is because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the house of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? What is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of rubble, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour her stones into the valley and lay bare her foundations. All her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I will destroy all her images. Since she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes as the wages of prostitutes they will again be used. Okay. What, uh, let's, let's look at this, these first few verses in Micah. And we're going to see, uh, not, this is not unique to Micah, but that God is saying these first 16 verses, this first chapter, that God sees and judges his people's wicked influences. That is, God sees how you are giving up uh, giving way to the influences, the dark and worldly influences in your life. Now, I'll explain what I mean by this. Micah clearly is talking about Samaria and talking about Judah. And Micah, as you will see from the handout that I've given you, it says Micah's political content. That should be Micah's political context, the handout that you have on the tables. Micah's political context is the context of an Assyrian world superpower. Uh, Nineveh is ruling the world. Now, we've already seen how much Jonah hated Nineveh. Nineveh, we already saw in December how wicked, how violent, how ruthless the Assyrians were. When they won a battle, they would take people and behead them and stick their heads on posts. And, and they, they were just gruesome people. And greatly feared across the world. Now, this is the context of Micah. It's during the Assyrian uh, power. And you see the rulers, the kings of Assyria listed there in sort of the middle of the page. 
And on the right hand side, you see the significant events. Various rulers were conquering the northern kingdom, Samaria. Eventually, in 721 B.C., they completely conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. That'd be the ten tribes in the north and took them into exile. And, of course, you can imagine what they did to most of them. That's the reason that we never we've never heard anything from those ten lost tribes since. 722, 721 B.C. The Assyrians just wiped them out. And then the Assyrians come south toward Judah into the land of Philistia, which would be now what we call Gaza, the Gaza Strip. That Gaza area has all these, you know, Ashkelon and Ashdod and some of the famous Philistian cities. And Assyria began to conquer them. And then Assyria threatens Judah. And you, if you get all the way up to 701 B.C., you see Sennacherib besieges Jerusalem. Now, Judah wins a mighty victory, uh, which is another distinctive of Micah. Let me go ahead and tell you. One of the distinctives of Micah, along with Jonah, is that people actually listen to him. You know, most preachers, people don't listen to him. You ever notice that? <laughs> we talk. Think how many words I will have used by the time my pastoral ministry is over. And how many of them will you remember? <laughs> you know, it's not to discourage a poor preacher. You know what I mean? And usually preachers and prophets are not listened to in terms of lives being changed. That's the usual, the dominant case. If you look in the minor prophets, that's the dominant case. They didn't listen to them. They didn't heed them. They didn't do what they said. And judgment came. In Jonah's case, against Jonah's will, remember, the Assyrians of all people believed in Nineveh. (laughs) And they were given the gift of repentance. And the whole city was in sackcloth and ashes. Amazing story, wasn't it? Well, in Judah, Micah is distinctive because the people listened to him. And you'll see in 701 B.C., if you look on your handout, that's where Judah won its mighty victory is because Hezekiah, the king of the day, listened to Micah. We'll see more about that later. But what was happening was the Assyrians were threatening. They had already demolished Samaria. And so this is debatable, but, but most scholars believe that when Micah speaks of the judgment coming upon Samaria, it's actually already happened. And when he speaks of the judgment coming to the Gaza cities, it's already happened. And he's basically saying the word of the Lord predicted this. And look at those places. Now, you all listen to me. Because he's predicting the same thing for Jerusalem. And you better listen or you're going to look like Ashkelon and you're going to look like Samaria. And they listened, finally. So Micah is distinctive because of that. And look, if if we're trying to find our prophetic voice, shouldn't we look at Micah? Maybe there's some hints as to why he was effective and why the people did listen to him and not to some of the other prophets. We'll pick up on this. But you'll see that the... The, the context is the Assyrian power. Now, the problem with Israel was that they were copying Assyria. They looked just like Assyria in many ways. They were just as ruthless. They were just as pagan. Now, they mixed in God, Jehovah, with their pagan worship. It was syncretistic. It was a blend, like most religion today in America. It's a blend. It's kind of... Christo-paganism. It's a blend of certain Christian ideas with certain Enlightenment ideas and certain New Age ideas and other, you know, democratic ideas. 
That's, that's what most religions are. They're syncretisms. They, they evolve. Your religions evolve. And that's what the northern kingdom had as their religion because they were influenced by the Assyrians and by the Canaanites and everybody else. The problem with the Judahites, the ones in the southern kingdom, this would be the tribes of Benjamin and Judah with their capital in Jerusalem. The problem with them was that they were being influenced by the Samaritans, by the, by the northern kingdom, by Israel. And here is what Micah is saying. God sees and judges the influences that you're allowing to take place in your life. It may be, it may be your father, for heaven's sakes. It could be someone very close to you. It may be your best friend. And they're influencing you in a negative way. God sees that. And He's going to judge it. And there's no excuse. They may be close to you. They may be your relatives. The people in the northern kingdom were the relatives of the people in the southern kingdom. These were cousins. But the people in the northern kingdom had given themselves away to a false religion. And now the people in the southern kingdom, the cousins, were being influenced because after all, they had more panache. They were more sophisticated than northerners, you know. They were. They, were where, they lived where the trade routes came from east to west. Whether the Egyptians went east or the Assyrians went west, they all came through uh, basically the Megiddo Valley. And uh, where, you know, the Revelation speaks of the Armageddon. That's just the hill of Megiddo. That's the whole valley going through there. There's where all the trade routes went. Well, where the trade routes go, there's where the sophistication and the culture and the money and the marketing and all that is. Well, these people in the north, they're so sophisticated. Let's be like them. Micah has a message to the southern kingdom saying, no, don't be like them. Look what happened to them. And you put yourself under their influence, you're going to go just the same way they have. So... We all have influences in our lives. This is not a north and southern thing, by the way, <laughs> in our country. But it is the idea of certain influences, the sophisticated power influences of our own day that go in a direction that does not please the Lord, which is our job description. God sees all of that. He knows what's happening. He knows what those influences are. And He knows when you're giving way to them. And He doesn't like it. That does not please Him. And we're falling in our job description. So God sees this. Now, first of all, notice that he communicates through an outsider named Micah of Morasheth. Morasheth. What in the world is Morasheth? Well, it's a city. or No, it's not a city. It's a little village over in the Gaza area, which would be kind of southwest or west of Jerusalem, over toward the Mediterranean. It's a little town mixed in there with the Philistines. And Micah came from an area that was rural, he was not a Jerusalemite. He was not from the city. He was from the country. He was from, he was from down the delta. <laughs> Coming to Memphis. Telling all those Memphians now what they need to do. Okay? Some of you are like that. That's where you came from. So you should be encouraged. That being from the big city doesn't mean anything when it comes to God. And coming from a wealthy family means nothing when it comes, from, uh, when it comes to God's view of things. Coming from a, a highly educated background doesn't mean a whole lot to God. Uh, except that we're all doing our best to serve Him. That's all that matters to Him. That we act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. And He proves it with Micah. He's a nobody from a nowhere. Nobody from nowhere. That's who He is. So, God's going to communicate through an outsider. And don't you see it beautifully in Luke's Gospel uh, when, when God uh, or when Luke is telling us about John the Baptist. And just listen to this description in Luke chapter 3. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, 
Herod, Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother, Philip, Tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priest of Annas and Caiaphas. Okay, so Luke is telling us what time this was. <laughs> During the reign of this big cheese and that big cheese and that big cheese and that big cheese. And religiously, Annas, the big cheese over here, the chief priest, and this big cheese and that big cheese. And he gives all the big cheeses. And then he says, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. Isn't that a wonderful text? <laughs> in the midst of all this royalty and power and prestige and money and majesty, the Word of God came to a man out in the desert who was wearing <laughs> animal clothing and eating locusts. That's where the Word of God came. And gentlemen, don't you find this often? It comes from a child. It comes from someone who's not caught up in all the power games and the social climbing and all the rest. Isn't that often where you hear the Word of God? And listen, isn't that where you're going to get the Word of God? By forsaking all the power structures and making, rather than making that your ambition in life and rather making your ambition to please the Lord, aren't you much more likely to hear the Word of God? Well, Micah of Morsheth is a perfect example. He's going to be speaking to those in high places in Jerusalem. But he comes from the little town of Morsheth. Secondly, God commands the world's attention. You notice in verses 2 through 4, as I said earlier, this is one of the most classic descriptions of God that you will find. God does communicate through people. And He says to them, Hear, O peoples. Listen, O earth. And of course, we know if you've read the introduction here in our study Bible that Micah is broken up into three major sections. There are a bunch of sermons, like 19 um, oracles that are lumped in three major sermons. Chapters 1 and 2 make a sermon. Chapter 3 through 5 makes a, a sermon. And chapter 6 and 7 makes a sermon. They're from different periods in Micah's life. And they're sort of lumped together for us. Each of those three sermons begins with hear or listen. Isn't that interesting? God, God's saying, pay attention to me just a minute. Speaking through the prophet. So you'll find that that language in chapter 3, verse 1, and verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 1, this hear and listening. And so this is how we get the three divisions of Micah as we're, as we're treating it today. Now notice that in God's greatness, in commanding the, ten, the attention of the earth, He first of all speaks, Hear, O peoples, listen, that the Sovereign Lord may witness against you the Lord from His holy temple. Here we have that that reeve, as we call it, R-I-V, in, in, in Hebrew is reeve. It just means a lawsuit. Here's a lawsuit from God. He's going to witness against us before the court. And he's the sovereign Lord. And he's coming from his holy temple. So he's coming as judge and king of the earth. And he's also witnessing against us. We'd be in trouble. <laughs> so you get from the very beginning that he is a God who speaks. He's not silent. He makes his will known. I mentioned to those of you at Second Presbyterian last Sunday morning that... Recently, I looked at this really beautiful book by John Booker. I believe his pronunciation is. It's B-O-W-K-E-R. He's the former dean of Trinity College at Cambridge. And a brilliant man. Uh, writes brilliantly. Has studied the religions of the world. He writes this beautiful book called God, A Brief History. <laughs> and he gives us a history of human thought about God. And he deals with Indian religions and Asia, other Asian religions. Deals with the religions of Abraham, which are uh, Judaism and Christianity and Islam. And and it's a 400-page book, and you get to the very end, and here's his conclusion. Well, how do we know who's right? Well, we don't know, he says. 
they all have a claim to the truth. And we don't know which one is right. And furthermore, he says, the most dangerous people in the world are those who think they do know. <laughs> now, that's the best that Cambridge University can do for you. <laughs> all of our human brilliance, all of our knowledge, all of our learning, a life of study. And you get to the bottom line, you don't know. God doesn't speak definitively. We don't know. Because we're assuming that everybody's thoughts are equally valuable. Now, we as Americans and Christians believe everybody has an equal right to state their opinion and to try to use their influence. There's a difference between equal right and equal value. (laughs) So, what Micah is saying is that God is speaking through me. And the Bible makes a claim that God actually communicates principally. Revealed truth that you can hang your hat on and you better hang your hat on it or you're going to be in trouble. So he is communicating. Our God talks. He speaks. Secondly, he judges. And you get that in the reeve in the second part of verse 2. And then thirdly, he acts. And look at these, these verses. The mountains melt. The valleys split like wax before a fire. What happens to wax in a fire? It just dissolves and melts and starts flowing like water. And that's the way God deals with the mountains. When He shows up, they melt. <laughs> this, the, the rock of Gibraltar dissolves before the living God. This is the powerful description that's being given of God's majesty. One of my friends who has been through an awful lot in life and is one of my heroes because he is persevering through some tremendous difficulties over two decades. And he was in my church uh, that I pastored 20 years ago, 25 years ago. And uh, he has persevered faithfully through some very, very difficult circumstances. And I just love him dearly. And I also like to learn from him because two people I like to learn from, especially besides the, the books in my library, those are my professors and the professors I've had in college and seminary. But uh, I learn from new Christians because God, for some reason, just seems to answer their prayers <laughs> in a dramatic way. And they're learning things new, newly, and I need to learn like they're learning. So I learn a lot from new Christians. But then, secondly, I learn from people who suffer. And some of you in this room are certainly in that category in, in ways that are very distinct and clear to the rest of us. And from you, I learn how to love God, and I learn how much God loves us. And I learn from my suffering friends some deep things that I I probably wouldn't learn without them. So my friend of 25 years ago, continuing friend, uh, happens to put little brief devotionals on email. And when I discovered this, he had been doing it for a few years before I discovered it. I said, please, Dan, put me on the list, which he, he did. And the one I got on December the 30th, was this. And what he does, he takes a verse or a part of a verse and then he reflects for about five or six lines on it. That's all it is. So the, the verse he was reflecting on is Psalm 68:33, And the verse says this, To him who rides the ancient skies above, who thunders with mighty voice. That's the scripture text. Here's what Dan says. Unrestrainable. Uncontainable. Sky riding. Universe thundering. Manger born, cross worn, 
blasts big time into my pitiful little world. I wonder if I'll have time for him today. (laughs) Dan's raising the irony of the way most of us live. We have this powerful God who makes mountains uh, mountains melt. And we're asking the question, I wonder if I'll give him two minutes of devotions today. I wonder if I'll go to Amen Bible study. I wonder if I'll think about him today. The problem with you and me and the problem with our, our culture, the fundamental problem is that the real majesty of the one true and living God rests nearly inconsequentially upon the consciences of men in our culture. That's the most fundamental problem of our society. And it is the answer for our finding our voice. It is to recover the majesty of the living God and what difference His majesty makes in the way that we live. And I want to suggest to you, right off the bat, this is the primary reason that Micah was effective as a prophet in his own day. Because he recovered the truth, the very obvious truth, of the divine majesty of God and never compromised it. And I say this not just because of Micah and this classic text here that led to repentance among the Judahites. I say it because if you look at every revival in the English-speaking tradition, which are the revivals I read about. Well, I read about the other ones too in English translation. But if I look at a description of any spiritual revival, corporately or privately, it always begins with recovering the majesty of God. Every case. It also leads to facing the brutal facts, as Jim Collins would put it in Good to Great, Facing the brutal facts about me. And the reason that you and I are not revived as we ought to be is we do not recover the majesty of God, nor do we face the brutal facts of our performance in this life. Micah says not only is God majestic, but in verse 5 he says, all this is because of Jacob's transgression Because of the sins of the house of Israel. So Micah begins with God's majesty. He then goes to human misery and sinfulness and rebellion. And he faces the clear, majestic facts of God and the clear, brutal facts of humankind. And he doesn't cut the corners. And he doesn't play games. And he doesn't flatter people. Beginning with himself. Now, If you'll look at the history of revival in our country, the greatest has to be what we know as the Great Awakening, which was in the colonial period. You had the likes of Jonathan Edwards and the itinerant preacher George Whitfield, the Methodist, uh, who was preaching throughout the colonies and all the way down to Georgia during the 18th century. If you'll look at Edwards' sermons, and I suggest you do that someday, you will find, uh, although he has a reputation in your university colonial history textbook as being a fire-breathing, a hate-monger, this ridiculous Puritan who tried to scare the hell out of people, 
That's the way he's caricatured. But if you'll look at his sermons, you'll find that the majority of them have to do with the exceeding majesty of the living God. His sermon on the excellency of Jesus Christ is excellent. <laughs> Just read it sometime. And I'm not going to speak of the excellency of Jonathan Edwards because he speaks of the excellency of Jesus Christ. When he speaks of praise, the chief employment of heaven, his sermon on that is absolutely magnificent. What's he doing? He is recalling the majesty, the glory, the honor, the unrivaled, unparalleled sovereignty of the living God. And then he preaches sermons like sinners in the hands of an angry God. He's facing the brutal facts. And people make fun, have made fun of him ever since. The secularist says that's a manipulative, hate-mongering, fear-mongering way of trying to manipulate people in the pew to get what the preacher wants them to do. They miss the whole point. Edwards is like Micah, who is saying, God in His majesty is making the mountains melt because of your transgression. He's acting in judgment because of the brutal facts of our performance. Now, this leads to an awakening. An awakening, awakening happens before you actually get converted. An awakening is when you, just, you, you wake up. Wake up to the facts. What facts? God's majesty and your sinfulness and transgressions. That then leads to a revival of religion where people actually give their hearts to Christ. Why do they give their hearts to Christ? Because they understand the problem for the first time. And people are coming to Christ because... They like Christian people. They like this ministry or that ministry because it's giving a little meaning to their life. They like the music. It's meeting their needs. People over there care. Gentlemen, the reason we give our lives to Christ is because we're desperate. Because we must have Him. Because without Him we're cooked. And we deserve it. And this is the point Micah's making. It's the point Jonathan Edwards makes. It's the point any prophet makes who is on the cutting edge of transforming society, recounting the majesty of God and facing the brutal facts. Now, we're going to see with Micah that he faces the brutal facts not with anger. He's not glad about it like Jonah was. I mean, you want to know a story of grace. It's God working through an angry, bitter prophet like Jonah. No, Micah is a prophet who really cares about the people. And that's the reason that among all the people who are preaching to the Judahites, I believe he has effect. If you'll look over, for example, in uh, chapter 2, we'll come back to chapter 1 in a minute. I, I, I beg your pardon. Verse 8 of chapter 1. We are in chapter 1. Let's stay there. He says, because of this, I will weep and wail. I will go about barefoot and naked. I will howl like a jackal and moan like an owl. For her, her wound is incurable. It has come to Judah. What has come to Judah? The syncretism and the false religion and the secular liberalism in the church of Samaria has begun to seep into Judah. And Micah weeps and wails over it and goes barefoot and groans and makes himself miserable because he is miserable because of the suffering, the moral and spiritual suffering of his own people. So 
Micah is no angry, bitter preacher. He is a tender-hearted prophet. Notice that God also convicts us of our sins if we back up to verse 5. Judah's high place. High place was a word used for pagan worship spots on mountains. Almost every mountain in Samaria had a high place, an altar to a false god. And Micah is saying to his brothers in the church, where's your high place? Where's your place of false worship? Is it at work? Is it in your bank account? Is it in your puny giving to the church and to the kingdom? Is it in your sexual relationships that are inappropriate? Where's your high place? And he says, is it not Judah? Is it not in the very heart of your religious life? Look at the language that's being used here in verse 5. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not the same as it was in Samaria? You talk about all these liberals who do this, that, or the other. You talk about these pointy-headed, moralistic right-wingers who are doing this, that, or the other. Is the problem not yourself, he's saying. And so, what is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? Jerusalem's on a hill too. Has Jerusalem not become a pagan altar? Yikes. He's going to the very heart of our religious life. And he shows us that God condemns false religion. He says, I will make Samaria a heap of rubble. And he's basically saying, Samaria has already become a heap of rubble. And so will you. Because, as he says, as we, we noticed here, uh, God's prophets weep with him because he says, because of this I will weep and wail. Because it's come to Judah. The sins of Samaria have leaked. You've leaked down to Judah. You've been influenced by people all around you. And I find the church is influenced all the time. You know, the, if you take the conservative church, which is the church I live in, okay? Your second Presbyterian church is what we call an evangelical church. That means we believe the gospel. It means that we believe that you have to be born again in order to be saved. It means we believe the Bible is true. It means that we believe the Bible reveals the will of God, including ethics. And so it's very typical for an evangelical church to say, you know, all this stuff about gay marriage and all this is going on, that's just so awful. That's horrible. That's bad. There are all kinds of sermons on gay marriage. Well, when will the evangelical church start talking about its own high place? which is its absolute rampant divorce through all the churches. With impunity. Everybody's got an excuse. Everybody's got a reason. Well, the Bible does give two reasons. Irreconcilable desertion and adultery. But we can create all kinds of things. Oh, you know, she was just impossible to live with. Irreconcilable differences. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da. God doesn't want me to be happy. Crap, crap, crap. That's what it is. And that's Prophetic. That's what it is. Excuses, excuses, excuses. We've created our own high place. What's our high place? It's the church itself. Which has become a society in which you will have your felt needs met to the maximum. Just like the men's store is to meet your needs to the maximum. Just like you're supposed to be weighed upon when you go into the automobile, uh, the automobile dealer and he's supposed to deal with you as a very special customer and give you just what you want and pamper you just the way you deserve to be pampered. And we deal with church the same way. The church has become the high place in our culture. We have treated it as another commodity, another consumer good. What happened to the majesty of God? And what happened to the knowledge that we have some brutal facts we have to face? 
And or we are desperately in need of His help. What happened to that? That's the reason the prayer meetings are puny. Because nobody thinks they really have a very big need at all. And that's the reason that worship is so puny. And nobody's singing because we don't have a whole lot to sing about except ourselves. And when the music is about how good I feel and how wonderful my life is and how good God is to me, we can sing. Or we can enjoy somebody else singing to us, which is mostly what happens in church today. It's become a high place. And our consumer materialistic culture has almost completely co-opted the heart of the church. It's become a place of entertainment. And if you like it, good, go. If you don't, well, don't. Watch it on TV or don't watch it at all. Just forget it. Because, you know, you can meet God in the garden just as well as anywhere else. Why would you do that? Because that's what you like. And after all, that's what it's about, isn't it, gentlemen? That's what Mike is facing. I think he got just as exercised as I did. Because he, had the same, he was facing the same thing. He realized that people's lives were falling apart because they had lost the majesty of God. And they had lost the willingness, not only the willingness, they had lost the ability to face themselves. They didn't even know what they were anymore. They couldn't even face the brutal facts anymore. And for this, he weeps and wails. God's people are clearly warned. At the end of chapter 1, you see they will go into exile. And this word exile at the end. And of course, you know in that second half of chapter 1, he's using all these villages, mostly in the area southwest of, of Jerusalem, and using puns. For example, you know, verse 10, tell it not in Gath, we not in, in Beth Ophrah, roll in the dust. Ophrah means dust. Beth means house. House of dust, roll in the dust. All those cities, those 11 cities are that way. He's using puns to say what you thought was blessing has become a curse. God has destroyed through the Assyrians all those cities and He's marching right to you in, in Jerusalem. Right to the church. And so beware. Now when we come to chapter 2, we've got a few minutes left here. God sees and judges His people's, not only their wicked influences, but their wicked intentions. The business community is crooked. They covet, they defraud, they plan iniquity. He says in in chapter 2, verse 1, Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light, they carry it out because it is in their power to do it. You know, when Clinton was talking, reflecting on his own sin with, what's her name? He said at one point, I did it because I could. And so many uh, uh, folks, I think especially Republicans, would go, oh, yeah, that's a cheap confession. And Clinton said, no, it's not a cheap confession. He said, I'm, I'm, and, and he's right. He was giving a profound confession. He was saying, I did that with her for the worst possible reason. That is, I had the power to do it, and I just did it because I could. He meant it as a deep confession of his sin. And you know what? Micah's saying, that's right. Those of you who are ripping off people, who are taking advantage of your own employees, who are not providing the medical care that you, ought, that you could, you're doing it because you don't have to do it. You're doing it that way because you can get by with it. You do it because you can it's the worst possible reason to do something. It's because you just have the power to do it. It's a total abuse of power. That's what Micah is saying to the business community. You are making a big mistake, he says, because you're assuming that because you can get by with something and because you're not indicted for something and because you're not thrown in jail for something and because you're not put at the bottom of the social heap for something, that you should do it. That that's being shrewd. You know, he, says, I, he said, God doesn't say, here's your job description. I want you to act shrewdly. 
He says, I want you to act justly. And we've seen what mishpat is, justice is in the Old Testament. So you don't just do it because you can do it. It's one of the big mistakes in current discussions in medical ethics. Those of you in the medical profession. The big mistake that's being made, the big assumption, the grand assumption that is the beginning of the errors in medical ethics is if you can do it, then you should do it. If you can clone a human being, then why not? If you can freeze a zygote and then throw it away, why not? If you have the technical capacity to do something, why not? If you can take stem cells from little infants who are being aborted and use them to to spare someone from their Alzheimer's, why not? If you can do it, why not? That's exactly what the business community was saying. They had the power to do it. Why not? I'll tell you why not. Because our job description is not to use our power. Our job description is to use everything that we have for justice and mercy and walking humbly with our God. That's our job description. So start with that. And then what you can or cannot do by technical power or political power or financial power is almost irrelevant. What's relevant is God. Let the glory of His majesty rest with great weight. And that's what the word glory means. Kavoth in Hebrew means weight. Let the weight of God's character rest upon your daily life. And make every decision and every comment and every ethical judgment based on the weight of His majesty. That's what Micah is saying. They plan iniquity. Look what God plans. My friend Steve Brown says, if you want to make God laugh, just tell Him your plans. God's planning things. And His plans are actually going to come to be. So beware of how He plans And then, just like any good business person, if you're not the CEO, you want to find out what the CEO is planning so that whatever you plan in your department or your division meshes with what he's planning. Otherwise, you're going to be out of court. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ is the CEO of the universe. Let's get in line with his vision and his plans, and then let's make our plans in accord with his plans. Let's get it right. The clergy are chicken. Chicken! Verses 6 and 11, they're saying, the clergy are saying to Micah, don't prophesy, shut up. They're saying to the Bible, be quiet. And that's what I hear today. We don't care if the Bible speaks about homosexuality or if the Bible speaks about divorce. The standards are ridiculous. We can't live up to that. God wouldn't hurt a flea. He's not angry. And that's exactly what's said here. Look at, look at verse 7. Is the Spirit of the Lord angry? He wouldn't hurt a flea. That's what the preachers were saying. Don't listen to Micah. Don't listen to the Bible. I'm telling you, I'm going to tell you how God is. He's nice. He's a gentleman, just like you. And he wouldn't take advantage of anybody or hurt anybody. And he would never get angry. Would he? I've had person after person, man after man after man, tell me through the years. Well, you can choose a God like that if you want to, but the God that I know is a God of love. Well, you may know him, but he doesn't exist. Because the God who exists is a God of love and a God of anger. That's who He is. And Micah says, you don't like that. So you just, you're telling people, don't believe the Bible if it says anything about God's anger. And they tell Micah to shut up. They tell the Bible to shut up. A Methodist bishop in Virginia, last month I think it was, 
put one of the preachers under discipline because he wouldn't admit a self-avowed homosexual into the membership of his church. And the bishop said, we can't exclude anybody from the church. Yeah, okay. Can't exclude anybody. Don't exclude Hitler. Don't exclude Stalin. Don't, don't exclude anybody. That is the church telling God to shut up. Telling Micah to shut up. In this case, telling Leviticus to shut up. And Paul to shut up. And Jesus to shut up. So, that's the, where the clergy come in. They're more concerned about pleasing people than they are pleasing God. We'll pick up there next time. And this really gets to Micah. That the ones who are supposed to be communicating the truth, and all of us are to be prophets. In this case, it was a clergy. They were the biggest problem of them all. There was a little conspiracy, a big conspiracy, between the business people who were making the money and paying off the clergy so the clergy which speak nice things to the business people. That was the little conspiracy they had going on. Does this sound familiar? <laughs> Mike is telling us to watch out. And we'll find out what the solution for all this is next week. Let's pray. Father, we uh, want to come under the glory of your majesty today. We want to worship you as you are, not as we thought we wanted you to be. We want to learn who you really are and be excited about who you really are. And then, Lord, we want to learn from You. We want to learn from Your Word. Instead of saying to the Bible, do not prophesy to me, be quiet. Lord, we want to say to Your Word, teach us. Make us men who act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with our God. Make us men who are like Jesus and whose leadership has transformative power because we have humbled ourselves under Your mighty hand, trusting that You will exalt us in due time. Help us in this year to seek to please You is our number one goal. Help us to make plans that are in accord with Your plans. And Lord, would You grant us Your blessing and the sense of Your presence with us. That's what we want. And that's what You promise. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. God bless you all.